Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. This is Hugh Ballou. This is the Nonprofit Exchange. We're here every week and we have interesting guests. And certainly today's guest is, we could say, the least important thing is interesting. Put on your seatbelt. We're going to talk about empowered leadership, and it may take several nuances. So Dr. Jeff McGee, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. And tell people, as some people don't know you, tell people a little bit about your background, who you are. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good to see you, and David. Good to see you as well. Good and for all of those of yeah. you following us out in virtual, uh, virtual land, welcome. Uh, background, I grew up to be a journalist. That was my passion. Uh, before I went to college, I had uh, already over a thousand articles published in a major city newspaper, so it was kind of an anomaly. That got me a great scholarship and an athletic scholarship to go to college. And uh, after college, I spent some time in Kansas City in print business uh, news, print, and in uh, broadcast. And one day, I just kind of quickly recognized journalism was a very negative, toxic, bitter, bullying industry. Um, and that wasn't a part of my DNA, so I had to leave it. Fortunately, it has changed over the past 40 years, and it's not that way at all, huh? We're tempted here. It's like if you can't get a real job, become a journalist, evidently, because they don't teach you journalism skills to that. Every time I see people on TV, just it makes my head spin to think about some of my professors. I had some phenomenal professors at the uh, small private college I went to in Kansas called Baker University. Part of its claim to fame was the uh, in, in the journalistic industry, the Sigma Delta Chi, which is the Society for Professional Journalists. Polium Foundation, um, their roots were Baker University. So with that, though, I went into sales. You know, again, I always tell people if you're unemployed, you're, you're only unemployed because you want to be. Uh, there's always a job in this great country, and one is always in sales. There's always a need for someone to do the sales side of every business. Of course, if you're not real good, you won't stay in that job. So I went into sales out of necessity, not design. It wasn't my career passion. Uh, let's jump forward several decades. So I've owned businesses that have been very successful, made me a lot of money. I've had some businesses that were complete disasters. I lost my underwear on them. So I've seen both sides of the spectrum, signed paychecks, done performance reviews. I always say that if you want to be an empowered leader, back to your objective in today's talk, uh, it is stunning today in a post-COVID world. And we'll just use LinkedIn as an example. It's the number one social media platform for business professionals. There's more people using it than any other platform. It's also the number one job search platform. So it's a great tool at the time we're recording this. What is sad, though, is a number of people that have never signed a paycheck, never done a performance review, never made payroll, that are out there trying to give leadership advice and counsel and coaching. Um, it seems like if you can't uh, perfect keeping a job, you become a coach on LinkedIn. It seems like it's stunning. Click on someone's profile and you can very quickly see how much of a loser they are or if they've actually ever done anything in life. That might offend some people, but that's okay. That's my style to be honest and blunt. Not offensive, but honest and blunt. So in that, uh, I've written 33 books, 21 languages, four bestsellers, four graduate textbooks. I've written curriculum for some of the national largest training companies out there, uh, Career Track, Fred Pryor, Skill Path, National Seminars, that hundreds of other trainers have learned my IP and have presented it to the world. Uh, and I just have a lot of fun working with businesses. My, pri my primary market is private businesses. Typically around a quarter of a uh, quarter of a billion to six billion in size. I work with a senior leadership team on leadership development, second tier of uh, human capital that they're growing and developing for their emerging leadership pipeline. Written a lot of books and uh, traveled the world speaking, training, and helping people be more effective. And your my connection 
for the world. And David, you've got a publication as well, but I publish a magazine called Professional yep. Performance Magazine. 17 co-publishers in that brand. One of them is the nonprofit edition that Hugh uh, is the publisher of. And that gives me a chance to interact with phenomenal personalities about success. And that brings us to today, emerging leaders. There's a planet need full of them, but to be an emerging leader, to be an empowered leader, to be an effective leader uh, isn't worth a damn if you don't use the word accountability and responsibility. And that's why the entire planet seems to have lost its freaking head in the last couple of months. There's no accountability. You don't need to create a new law. How about enforce them? You've just, in essence, you know, defiled and uh, painted and graffitied and defaced public property. Um, there's a fine and a prison sentence. I think it's about time we toss people off uh, off the planet, get them out of here, or hold them accountable. You know, I'm preaching to the choir, and uh, you're you're doing the orchestra directing. You're right. People are not held accountable, and that's why we have our problems. There you go. And leader above all. So this is the baton that I give corporate leaders. It's called conducting transformation. So let's talk about myths. You know, the the myth about a conductor is that they're a dictator. Well, I got to tell you, you got a bunch of union players out there who are pretty cocky. They're very skilled. And you step on the podium. Podium is the thing you stand on, by the way. And um, people call it lectern a podium. <laughs> but you got the little white stick. You think you can make anybody do anything? So there's leaders. There's leaders in companies that think they want to bully people and make them do things. But it really has a negative effect. And, you know, there's the thing in the military, and you work with a lot of military groups, that in, in combat, if your platoon doesn't respect you, they're likely to shoot you in the back. And I know every day there's corporate leaders to get shot in the back and they don't even know it. So what are some of the myths? I don't know if you agree with any of those, but those are the myths as I see them. What do you see some of the myths about leadership? 100% agree with everything you've said. Again, a person will work for a dictator when they see no other option or opportunity. A person will stay with a dictator. They'll stay in a bad situation when they don't possess the intellectual capacity to see a solution through the wall in front of them. That's never a wall. It's simply a sliding door. People do not grasp that. They see all these obstacles. They're never an obstacle. It's an opportunity. There's your cliche and a myth. It is an opportunity. So, so how do you see things differently? So in 1979, President Jimmy Carter created the U.S. Department of Education. In theory, phenomenal concept. Problem is that 100 years before him, one of our presidents did the exact same thing. He created the Department of Education. That lasted about one month until he realized that this was a complete freaking nightmare and could not be, in essence, uh, managed to accomplish its objective, and he basically unbundled it. Well, the element of what President Carter created, let me defend this concept, because actually it's brilliant. If, 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 if David and where he lives in his city and his state and his country on this planet and Hugh in your city, in your state, in your country on this planet, and Jeff McGee in my city, in my state, in my country on the planet, we were to go to an appliance store and buy a new television set made by any major brand, we would expect that product to be warrantied and as a minimum operate the way it's been advertised as a brand to perform no matter where we bought it. You go into McDonald's to buy a, buy a Big Mac in Idaho. It costs $16 as of today. That's interesting. So someone says we're not in a recession, but that's okay because it's going to illustrate my point. Anyone that doesn't think we're in a recession is a product of a failed K-12 system. And that's what a living proof of a moron looks like. 
So you buy a Big Mac in your state, Dave buys one in his state, I buy one in mine. We expect that Big Mac to taste like that brand has advertised it to taste. And that's why the TV company stays in business and so does the McDonald's Big Mac. Now, K-12 education. As a minimum, if any one of the three of us were to hire a high school graduate in anywhere we are in this country, as a minimum, that student is a product and that product should operate as a minimum, just like the child in the other state. Why is it that in essence, David can have a phenomenal public K-12 system? Because there are some great public schools. So why is it David has great public schools in his state and in his town? And so there's not really a proliferation of private schools, Christian schools and homeschooling because there's no need for them because these people are actually doing the job they're paid to do because these teachers are empowered leaders themselves and they have something called integrity and pride and accountability that they may have an opinion, but they're only going to share that opinion once the child's been educated to think critically and know a fact from fiction and reality from garbage, then the teacher might give their opinion. Now, Hugh, your state's 50-50. Some of your schools are great and the others kind of suck, but I won't mention I live in Las Vegas, Nevada, because that wouldn't be nice. So basically all of our schools suck. So that's why there's a proliferation of all these private schools and homeschooling because, again, the public schools are terrible. Okay, that comes back to your point about miss and how we get to where we are. So if we want to be successful, leadership comes back to, and I just use that as a quick case study example, it has to go back to accountability. So why is it then in David's school district, when they have parent-teacher conference night in the fall and in the, in the spring, you can't find a place to park a car one mile from the school because every parent is there talking to the teachers, finding out how's my child doing? How do we help them become better? Why are they not excelling in this? How can I help you as a teacher? How do we make sure that this school is safe so there's not a bunch of crap and graffiti and gangsters so kids can come and just be kids and learn? So see, David's school district is doing it right. And then Hugh, it's a 50-50 crap shoot in your state. Some schools are that way and some are terrible. You have parent-teacher night no one shows up everyone blames the teachers for every problem out there because they took time to create the child so that was about a five second event but they forget the next 18 years and they never go to take care of the kids so the school's babysitting and in my city it's a complete nightmare everywhere so again we don't have consistency because we don't have accountability or if we had accountability we're not holding people accountable to accountability and we allow people to have excuses I don't know about you, but I guess we're three old white guys, so that pisses off half of our listeners right now. So again, let's play this game through. I bet all three of us, when we were little kids, had the same experience and our parents didn't even know each other. I bet within five questions, David, when you came home as a little kid from school, when you first saw your parents, whatever time that was, and Hugh, I bet again, within the first five questions when you came home from school, your parents asked you something like, do you have homework? True or false? Yep. What did you learn today? Yep. True or false? True. True. I mean, just those two right off the top meant parents were holding themselves accountable to be a damn parent and engage with their kid so they could create a better human being in a person in that community. Today, it stuns me when parents actually don't know their child has skipped school for today or the last week or the last month. See, there's no accountability. No one's held accountable. Nobody. That's why I love it when a child does something wrong and the parents are also held accountable. You don't see that child doing something wrong again. Maryland, last rant to answer your question. So I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, working with the Army National Guard several years ago, and they had that huge riots that were going on. I don't remember if you remember that one mom was on national TV, happened to wear a yellow shirt, David, like you're wearing. But I call that the mom of the freaking century. You saw her on the TV in her yellow shirt, walking across the street, grabbing her son and taking him home saying, we don't do this. We don't act this way. See, that's accountability. So where were all those other parents? The mayor, the mayor saying we have to give people room to riot. That's accountability. She should have been immediately arrested. But no, we have no guts. That's why we have our problems. So when you talk about leadership, yes, I get very excited because one of the key elements that goes with leadership is accountability. Amen. Now, now, Dr. Jeff, take a why, are, okay. why are you sugarcoating it? Tell us how you really feel. 
Yes. And I wish I could have more of those platforms. But the reality is we have a lot of people in leadership roles in this country that actually their resume screams employee at the highest level of their stature. That's a great one, David. You just nailed it. But no one has the guts to take a step back and say, wait a second. If we put you in a leadership role and you don't know how to execute that role, the, the, the toxicity that comes out of that is going to be enormous. It becomes cancerous to the organization. And what it does, is it shifts and now since all the terrorists in the organization think it's payday for them and all the transformers say, I'm out of here and they go somewhere else. Great observation. Hey, let me uh, definition of terms. When Jeff used the word suck, it's it's halfway to success. You get partway and you don't make it. Is my right? That's exact. So I got a lapel pin. It's in a key and it says attitude. Attitude's your key to success. And so Hugh and I have sh shared some stages at CEO conferences over the past 20 years. And that was one of my, and still is one of my go-to lines. If you take the word success and put a bracket around the first three letters, it's, you know, phonetically is suck. So again, would you prefer to suck or do you prefer to be successful? Because it's the same amount of energy to go to either destination. Same amount of energy to go to either destination. Well, it's the persistence to finish it and to stay with it. Because, you know, if you've grounded yourself in knowledge and principles, and then you've surrounded yourself with people that are supporting you, you know, most of us have teams that are below us. And the, my motto is, if you're the best person on your team, get a new team. Because You so just said something profound. Not only that last statement, if you're the best person on your team, get a new team. And again, sometimes you, you graduate to there and then you have to have the awareness to realize I've got to hold myself accountable. It is time to, again, the buzzword of the past decade, level up, stand up, step up, whatever you want to call it. But you're right, change your teams. I mean, you know, I have a friend of ours, Les Brown, one of the top motivational speakers and inspirational gentlemen on the planet. Uh, and, I, and I share a concept. And again, he and I have spoken on way too many stages uh, to, to think of, but I call it the Les Brown rule. Again, would Les Brown do this? And again, as a motivational speaker, no, he wouldn't. Why would you then? Would Les Brown say this? No, then why are you saying it? So again, you know, change it up. Now, another piece of this, again, for the, those people that actually did get a good K-12 education, um, there was a gentleman, his name was President Ronald Reagan. Again, Ronald Reagan was a president in this country. He was not the first president. He was just a president. It is stunning that students actually, when asked that question, would answer with something like, wasn't he the first president of the United States? It's like, again, every teacher you had should be fired at that moment, and they should all lose their retirement pension fund. You sucked. You're not going to live on it. But with that said, he had a comment. A-level people surround themselves with A-level people. Listen, B-level people surround themselves with Cs. And there's your very problem on the planet. You should always be around people you can help up, yes. Be around people at your level, yes. But be around people that will help you to be a better you every day that are pushing you because they may see within you attributes that you're missing. Or sometimes we all have a negative self-doubt talk. We all have a, you know, can I really do this? And again, if you have good advocates, mentors, champions, sponsors, you know, whatever word you want to use around you, they'll level you up, which goes back to empowered leadership. I'm sorry, I got excited again. No, 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 no. So you take all those issues and we're, we're talking our audience are nonprofit leaders and a few clergy and we're, we're in a for purpose type of business. It ain't about the profit, but it's everything that you talked about is really amplified because it's a lot harder space to lead because you're leading volunteers. Now we can surround ourselves with, especially the retired volunteers that are very high functioning people but we don't take advantage of it. So in some sense, Jeff, we've imported some of this dysfunction from corporate America into our 
nonprofits thinking that's the way it ought to be. So talk about in that sector where we depend on volunteers and donations and raising the bar on our skills. What are some of the challenges that you see in that sector? The quantum growth we had in the first 10 presidents of this little experiment called the Republic of the United States of America, quantified has been more significant than any other time in our history. If we peel that back and answer the question from 300-ish years ago almost, we can answer the question to today. Number one, no one was a full-time political leader. They all had real lives and real jobs. That's why they came together for basically 45 days in the middle of freaking winter in New York because that was the epicenter. And then it became Philadelphia and then it became D.C. There's your first clue. Number two, our educators were not little kids that graduated from college with an idealistic view of something, but have never actually done anything in their life. They had zero calluses on their hands. They have zero calluses on their brain. And that's who we allow to be educators today. If you go back a couple hundred years ago, our educators were the elders in the community. The, the women and the men that were doing it, hadn't done it, and had a freaking clue what they were talking about. So again, back to what you just said in terms of powerful retired people, maybe that's our clue to go back to education. So if we live in this country now where one of the biggest expenses older people have, anyone has, is health care because the Affordable Care Act under President Obama was exactly that, the Affordable Care Act, for I have no freaking clue who. Because before him, I was paying $136 a month for my own insurance because I'm self-employed. Today, I pay almost $1,000 a month for my own insurance because it's the Affordable Care Act. If you had six people that couldn't get freaking insurance because they're medical freaks or had some sort of medical problem, how about the government just create a separate lane to take care of them instead of screwing up the entire industry? But that's what happens when you have people with no calluses on their brains or hands making major decisions. So I just took something very powerful that we all live with today, a healthcare experience, and tied it back to 200 years ago with our leaders. Now we bring it back to volunteers and leaders today. Maybe what we do is we say, if you're going to teach math, science, history, et cetera, in K-12, and you've never actually ever had a real job, then with all due respect, sorry, you need to hit pause and go get a real job and get a real life and then come back and teach. So all of you retired people, David, you're a mathematician, you know, math in the middle of the night, you're great at this retirement. You know what? Why don't we let you come back and be the math teacher and we'll cover all of your healthcare benefits now and give you some extra pocket money now that you're retired and we won't tax it. So this is just free money for you to have whatever the paycheck is. And now you have people that want to educate because they want to make someone better and they actually understand what they're talking about. So for example, as a journalist, I still remember Beverly Paulson, my journalism teacher at Baker University, phenomenal woman. She stood about four feet tall, chain smoked cigarettes like she's a freaking factory. She wrote for the Miami Herald for about 9,000 years, but she was a great journalism teacher. And, and, and every afternoon she kept camp in her office and like a zillion of us kids crammed in her office to learn from her. See, that's back to your volunteer element. But she talked about you're a journalist, Jeffrey. That's why you don't have an opinion. When you're older, you can become the commentator. That's why they're all old people on TV that give the commentary back in the day because they had experience and wisdom. But as a journalist, if you're going to write an article, you can't quote a fact unless you have two other people that don't know each other that can corroborate what you're writing on. Today, we have journalists. Turn on any network. You have, you have talk shows of journalists interviewing journalists. And if you look at the resumes, very few of them have a resume. And so people consume misinformation from which they shape their brain to have views. And that's why everything's off the rails. So now back to your volunteer. So we need to tap into this phenomenal mental DNA of people. Now, there's, there's some whack jobs that are older and younger. So you need to have some sort of a vetting process. So you don't, in essence, you know, put the, you know, the, the wolf in charge of the hen house, as they say. So you want to have the right people. But we have great talent. The problem is we push them off the rails. 
because we think this loud voice that's yelling on the sideline is a huge constituent, and it's not. I love it when the news talks about a major protest and they zoom out and they call it 100,000 people. No, it wasn't 100,000 people. It might have been 20,000, and that's a ton. But they call it thousands of people, and they zoom out, and it's like eight people. So again, you don't change an entire civilization to accommodate eight people on the sidelines. Assimilate or leave. But see, no one has the guts to say those things. And that's why everything's off the rails. In business, I tell people, what are your core values as a business? I've written a book on diversity. So I have some clues on what I'm talking about here. So again, you have a business. What are your core values? You should open that business up to anyone on the planet that wants to share in your values because their diversity is diversity of thought. Diversity of thought is diversity of success and greater conversations. But you don't allow someone in your organization that's going to challenge your value system and create, in essence, an implosion point so the entire organization ceases to exist. Go find your own organization. See, that's the other problem is that we don't, we don't have these serious adult conversations. I've got a client. Their value system is faith. Family farming. They're a $6 billion agricultural banking institution. That's their value system. If you align with that, we'd love to interview you and you be a part of the organization. And I have made the comment many times, soon as you start hiring someone that doesn't share that value system, hold on for the implosion of your business. Because I can give you a rear view mirror of a ton of businesses that used to own the planet. And when they forgot their values, they cease to exist every time. David, I didn't save you much time for questions, but come on, you got something to lay on, Jeff. To... Well, that's a, that's quite all right. I, uh, I've i been sitting here enjoying it. Thank um, you, sir. You're quite welcome, sir. Uh, you know, you know, we've, we've come upon an age where everything is tilted in the wrong direction. And as much as you have the passion and others, I'm sure, out there in the world have the passion, we're still disjointed. How do we come together as a collective of, let's call ourselves intelligent people and, you know, make enough noise to get noticed, to get something accomplished? So I had a client years ago that was a congressman and um, he later became not my friend. Uh, and, and, and one of the major pivots that caused that is how I'm going to answer your question. I was sitting in his office one day and there was a bunch of people chanting outside and, you know, protesting. doesn't even matter the what. When you talk about these people that protest, you know, we had these, you know, people that were took over the parks in New York City and different cities years ago, or they, you know, they, they march on D.C. and et cetera. And he goes, here's the problem. The normal voter is too stupid to know what's really going on. Point number one. Point number two you know, once you learn to just tolerate the 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 loud people, then you can have a phenomenal political career and you'll never get unelected. So that was interesting. And I said, so let's go a little deeper. And he made the comment this way. So people protest and, and they don't understand you're never going to create change. And so, David, to the point of, in essence, you know, how, how do people with conviction, you know, get things back on the right rail? Well, one is vote. Vote. There's no way 81 million people came out of the woodwork and voted this time mathematically more than in the history of our country, et cetera, et cetera. 
if they weren't motivated to come out, whether it's a real number or not, I'm not going to debate it. So, so, so one, you've got to vote. So a lot of times people on the sideline are frustrated, but they don't vote because the voice they hear is my vote doesn't count. Well, if your vote, if you hear that, David, and Hugh says that, and I say that, and the five of us don't show up, and the other side wins by two points, guess what? It's our fault, not them. So one is vote. Two, be involved. Be involved. Don't fight the person. I think a lot of people, I'm going to pat my heart. I think a lot of people are good people. They just have a lot of rhetoric and, and they have a lot of fiction in their head that they think is fact and logic. So we have to ask people questions, not to, again, I don't want to offend you, Mr. Dunworth, but help me to understand what you just said. See, ask the question. Get people to, 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 to articulate and realize, wait a minute, they may start to articulate and realize that they have no freaking clue what they're saying. Third, here's his punchline. He goes, if these 5,000 people showed up in my front yard, my wife's going to call me, and I don't care what the vote is I got to make. I'm changing my vote to get 5,000 people out of my driveway. See, if you want to create change, you've got to find where do people really live and what matters to them. Not hurt them, not offend them, not violate, but you got to show up in the right place. Showing up in the, outside your business building, who gives a crap? I show up in your neighborhood, it's going to be different. I mean, your neighbors are going to say something. You're going to say something. Now I've got your attention. So again, we don't have someone's attention. We don't stand behind our convictions. We're not following the, the virtuous pathway to success. And we are allowing the, the minority voice to derail anyone. And, and again, hey, I'm not a white Republican. Don't hear that. I'm not a white Democrat. Don't hear that. I'm an independent. I've got great friends that I would vote for on both sides of the party line. The problem is sometimes the party overtakes common sense. And then the party does something stupid. Just like if you go down in any city in America, three great young kids are standing outside of a house and they probably were well-grown by their parents and their school and their church and their neighborhood. But if you add the wrong kid into that mix, those three kids now are going to become rebellious. It's going to be a party. It's going to be out of control. There's going to be destruction and the cops have to show up. And then we say all young kids are bad and they're not. See, again, we've got to hold the outlier accountable. I got a bazillion miles on my plane. Anyone who thinks this country sucks, let me know. I'm more than happy to fly you one way. Pick a country, I'll send you. Jeff McGee, our clock is not our friend. We've ended that. We've come to the end of our time. So if people want to find out about you, they can go to jeffreymcgee.com. I'm showing it for people that, that are watching, but people on the podcast aren't seeing it. What will people find when they go to jeffreymcgee.com? Two elements, right? There where it says resources in top right. That's probably your best heaven. Go there. There's tons of free articles. There's a podcast. This podcast will be there very quickly. My own podcasts are there. My books, my articles, magazine, uh, news and events. I do some public events uh, throughout the course that people can come to there. How I help is the button. I, I live in leadership and sales revenue, those elements. And they also can go to my magazine, uh, Your My, our magazine, professionalperformancemagazine.com would be the second URL. So jeffreymcgee.com for where I primarily live, uh, talent development. If you're a business leader, business owner, and you want to take your company to the next level, let's talk. That's great. Beautiful. Thank you for being our guest today on the Nonprofit Exchange. Thank you very much, both of you gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Thank you for listening to The Nonprofit Exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.